have your Bible or a device that you'll be looking at the Scriptures with us this morning, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. Um, over the last several months, we've been working our way through First and Second Samuel. Um, this story of leaving the period of the judges, of the monarchy being established in Israel, um, of, of the people of God, the people of Israel really rejecting God and saying, we don't want you to be our king, we want a king like the nations, which they got as a judgment in Saul. And then the rise of, of King David, um, the long, arduous road for him to, to be the anointed king of Israel. And then we've had a really quick peak, right? Like the pinnacle of this happens really fast, where Jerusalem is now the political um, capital, it's the religious and spiritual capital, where there's peace from enemies, and we, it looks like, okay, finally, things are the way they're meant to be. And it, we, we hit that crescendo, and it, we don't stay there very long. Because we see David, um, his sin with Bathsheba. Um, and, and then as we move out of that, we begin to see the ripple effects, just the devastating effects and consequences of sin. Um, it's probably not hyperbolic to say the passage we're going to look at this morning has never been preached on Mother's Day. Um, it, it was a weird week, right? Trying to think, are we really, are we really staying here? Um, we we did coordinate it um, honestly so that the elementary kids would be out this morning. Um, it's it's a passage that maybe should come with a little bit of a trigger warning, um, and I, I don't say that tongue in cheek at all. Um, Listen, there is a a stigma I think sometimes the church carries is that we don't enter into the fray, right? Like that we we tend to be quiet and we recognize that there's pain in the world, but we don't know how to talk about that. Um, And so that sometimes the church can be accused of being a little bit Pollyanna, right? Like, hey, it's all going to be good in the end, so it's all good now. And and that's not true, right? It is all going to be good in the end, right? But this world has difficulty and suffering and victims and pain. And, and Scripture is gracious enough not to whitewash those details for us. That we see some stories that are just, to be quite honest, uncomfortable. Um, and so we, we, we wrestled with whether to, to hit this passage this morning. Um, I promise if you go to lunch afterwards, no one else will be talking about Second Samuel 13 today. It will not be a Mother's Day sermon um, and we may regret it as well. I don't know. But we are going to, to move ahead. So if you weren't um, curious about Second Samuel 13, you are now. So let's pick up in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amon, I'm going to stumble over that all morning, David's son loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shema, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come 
and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and go. She said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong, and sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her, and he called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. She was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out, bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house, when King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. What a horrific story. Right? It, is, it is nauseating. And as we read it, um, it feels like we've had just kind of back-to-back-to-back weeks where we have just seen the, the grotesqueness and the ugliness of sin. Right? Like where it just, you're like... Ah. This is difficult. And right in this scene almost feels like you're watching or reading a movie. Right? It's like the royal drama um, that you're like, oh, man, this is just the Old Testament. It's what the Old Testament does. And yet, if we are reminded, right, as Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church, right, that he, he's saying, listen, you have one in your midst who is sleeping currently with his stepmom. Right? Like the, the Scripture across the board, not just in the Old Testament, but across the board, is willing to hit on the details and the grittiness and the ugliness of sin. Part of what's going on here is, is twofold. There are some succession issues, right? David is the king. We know that his line is going to keep the throne. And so who's going to be his heir apparent? Well, Amnon is the oldest. We see that in 2 Samuel um, 3, verse 3. We see that he and um, Absalom have different moms. And Absalom, though, is a full brother right, with Tamar, right? Like they have the same parents. And in chapter 12, in the midst of David's sin, a judgment by the prophet Nathan is given. This is chapter, chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. It says, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. 
And I will take your wives before you, right? And, and we just see like these things are already coming true. That, that difficulty and evil and trial is coming into David's house because of his own sin, where he has despised the Lord. Listen, church, I, I know in a room of this many folks in the day and age that we live in that, that sexual assault has affected some of you. It just has. Like, there's no way that it hasn't in a room full of this many when we see the statistics that are out there. And so I know that this can be, this can be difficult, um, but I'm, we're asking, we're praying that the Spirit would minister to you this morning, that there would be hope, that there would be healing, um, not that we think that all of a sudden everything's going to be okay as we get up and leave today, but that we would lean into this, right, this morning and see what Scripture can, can reveal and teach us and show us. And so we're just going to kind of walk through the characters in this story. And we'll, we'll begin with Amnon. He's the eldest son, the next in line, um, and yet we see a man who is ruled by his passions, right? By, by his lust, by his lack of self-control. And so we're seeing, like, this is not one who's going to be fit for the throne, right? Like, that he just sees something and thinks that because of his power and his prestige that he can just take it. Right? This is not the type of men or not the type of man that we want leading the nation of Israel. We don't want him leading anything. And ultimately, the issue, right, was is that he was not seeing Tamar as a woman, right? He was seeing her as an object, something that could be taken for his pleasure, for his good, and then discarded. And so he, he, he creates this ruse and basically has her come and, and, and cook for him, Right? setting up a scene where hopefully, right, she's going to be a willing participant. And when she's not, because of his lack of self-control, because his passions are ruling him, because he's made himself ill, right, with this thought of, of conquest, at that point he's willing to just take her. Jonadab probably did not anticipate rape being the situation. He thought it would just be an illicit relationship that was maybe mutual. And so, listen, we have got to begin to see people and teach our children and our grandchildren to see people as image bearers. Right? They're, they're not objects. And so we think of this often simply in regards to sexuality. Right? Like that this is a gender issue, but this is also um, this is a money issue. Right? Do we see people who have more money? Like, are they able to look at those without as much as, as image bearers, as individuals? Right? Or do they see an object that they can control because of influence and power, finance? Right? Do we look at those from other nationalities, right? Or even other religious backgrounds and say, right, like we can politicize this and I, I don't see you any longer as a father or a mother or as a person. I just see something that I'm allowed to hate and I can uh, objectify you because you're so different than me. And so if there's violence against you, so be it. Right? If there's hate against you, so be it. We can see this with, with the issues of intellect or ability or even someone's sin who's different than yours. And you're like, I, I can hate and objectify those people who do that sin because that's not my sin. Right? This isn't just an issue of sexuality this morning. This is, do we see people as having worth that has been given because they have been created by God in His image? We are all image bearers, worthy of respect, dignity. 
Or do we see people as objects for our own benefit? I think it's important for us as well to see that the sin didn't satisfy. Like, what a shocking turn, right? Like, that he finally gets what he wants, right? And then immediately, in verse 15, right, it says he violated her, he lay with her, and then he hated her with a great hatred, more so than, like, the lust and the passion that he had for her, right? That it's on a, like, just turns on a dime. Right, because it was never about her. It was about him. And he realizes in the midst of it what he's done. And so he can't even bear to look at her. Because it's a reminder of his own depravity and his own sin. And so he immediately like sends her away. Right? Like where the room was empty, now he's calling people in to remove her. Right? Like it's just it's it's disgusting. Like the, the way that he is treating anyone, let alone his sister. Let's go to David. We see David is very, he's not real present in this story. But we know that David has violated a woman, Bathsheba, right? Taking her. And so we, we see his own sin beginning to come out in his children. And I think often when we see our own sin, right, we, we have one of two responses. We, either, we can become really angry when we see our sin being done, right? And we want to like stomp it out or we can, we can become really passive because we don't feel like we have a leg to stand on. If we have committed a similar sin and now our children or our friend or our spouse or someone we know is, is committing it, we're like, oh, who am I to say anything? Right? But yet the truth is the truth, whether we have kept it or not. And so we see him being extraordinarily passive. That it says that King David heard all these things in verse 21, and he was very angry. Period. No act. Like, he just lets it go. And so he felt, in, like, right, he was indignant. He felt anger, but he doesn't do anything about it. He's passive. And we've seen earlier his passivity has served him well in regards to not taking Saul's life. And yet here, his tendency to passivity, right, is going to wreak havoc in his own household. Church, we have to be reminded, especially men, that, that passivity is a natural bent for us because of the fall. That if we go back to Genesis, right, like that, that it was Adam standing to the side as Eve is having the conversation, right, as Eve is making the decision, and then he's right quick to want to blame her, right? That if we're not careful, we cannot lead our families, ourselves, churches, our children, our grandchildren, our places of business well because we just kind of let things happen. We stand by, we feel things, and we think things, but we don't do anything about it. Right? Like that, that Tamar here needed an advocate. She needed to want someone to stand on her behalf. Right? Amnon needed someone to say, listen, this doesn't go. Like he needed someone to address it and to bring justice to bear and consequence in his life and a rescuer for Tamar. And so there's some, some shock to us here that David is not doing that, right? He's kind of been the hero of the story, and now here he is just kind of standing on the sideline. And if, and if you're wondering, is this the character of God? Listen to what we see. This is Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. 
Like that is the character of God. And His image bears, that's what we've been called to, that we look out for those who are powerless to affect their change. It's why we see the widow and the orphan talked about throughout Scripture, right? Those who could not have changed their, their situation in the culture. Like the character of God is that He sees brokenness and He does something about it, right? He rescues it and we are to reflect that image. And so listen, you may be wondering, why are we moving so quick from Amnon to David? And here's why. I want us to look at Tamar. Because right? if, if we're not careful, right, we just like move past the victim. Like she's just a pawn in this. Because and if you go, oh, I, I wouldn't be quick to do that. Think about David and Bathsheba. How much attention does Bathsheba get in the conversation? We mostly focus on David. And yet Tamar is the one here who has been absolutely violated. Listen, the Bible is often accused of being um, disconnected or, or patriarchal. I want you to note, nowhere in this narrative is she blamed, right, for being in there, for not having seen the, the signs, for not, right, she's not blamed at all, right? Instead, we see her resistance, right? She brought them near to him in verse 11. He took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister, right? Initially, it's kind of, it's a request, if you can call it that, because he's holding her. And she answered, no, my brother, do not violate me, right? This immediate don't do this. Right? Don't do this. And she calls him brother, reminding him of the relationship. She says, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. And what she's doing here, she's basically quoting Scripture from Genesis 34-7, right, where we have the rape of Dinah. Right? And it says they were known because this stuff isn't done in Israel. Right? And she's she's um, appealing to his knowledge of Scripture and to the spiritual side, saying, Listen, I'm going I'm to quote this. Don't do this outrageous thing. You'll be known right, as a fool for this. We don't do this in Israel. So brother, you don't do it for your benefit. Don't do it for my benefit. Right? Please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Listen, that's, that's not true. right? Because David is one who keeps the Torah. And, and we see in Leviticus 18.9, um, that this would have been a marriage that would have never happened. Here's what it tells us. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another house. Right? Like this relationship was too close, too intimate. Right? Like you, you don't do this. You don't do this. And so she's basically like stalling, trying to delay, trying everything of like, physically removing herself, calling him on his, right, don't do this, based on the relationship, based on the spirit, based on his opinion. Like she's, she's even saying, listen, maybe, maybe dad will allow this marriage to happen. She's doing anything she can to get out of the situation. And he refuses, right? And he takes her, and he brings trauma into her life. Scarring her. And then immediately he tells her to get up and go. And, and she has this interesting phrase in verse 16. She said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away. It's greater than the other that you did to me. And you're going, Whoa, how can leaving be worse than what he just did? And it's this is that she would now, in the culture, be sullied, be tainted, would be disqualified from marriage. Like he is 
condemning her for the future. He's, he's damning her future. And so listen to what Deuteronomy uh, chapter 22 would say. And, and not in any sort of like affirmation of rape, but there is a, a, a conversation of, listen, if, if rape occurs, here's what needs to happen afterwards. Verse 28 of chapter 22 of Deuteronomy. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, seizes her, lies with her, and they're found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her, and he may not divorce her all his days. Basically saying, listen, if you're going to take upon this, then you're going to provide for her for the rest of her life. Listen, we get that it's not an ideal marriage. Right? But it's saying, you will be cared for and provided for in the culture right? based on this. You're going you're to have some consequences, and you're going to reap right, the effect of this, and you will care for this woman now as your wife because you have taken upon right, like that you're her husband in doing this and in violating her. And so in this, when he is sending her away, she's realizing, like, you have, you have violated me, and now you're saying, I'm not going to be cared for. Like, I'm not going to be taken care of the rest of of my days. And so you can feel the objectification, the isolation, the despair, right? Like, listen to the description here. Um, she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, so, her, so the servant put her out, and she put ashes on her head. She tore the robe that she wore. She laid her hand on her head, and she went away crying aloud as she went. What a horrifying, isolating picture. Like, we can feel the despair. The shame. Like you, you feel the helplessness that she is feeling. And you're asking the question, now what? Like because we know that the trauma is affecting her, it breaks her, it scars her. Like that he takes away her personhood. And it's the way that he brought her in, he now sends her out. Like he was reversing everything. So listen, again, it's just hard to hear. But what I want us to say together this morning is this, is that we want to be a place where you're, like, if, if trauma, assault has happened, like, you'll be seen. And you'll be heard. And you'll be believed. And it doesn't take away that moment. But you don't have to be isolated. You don't have to do this alone. You don't have to wonder about your future. Like, we will resource Whatever we can do to walk with, to care for, for the long haul, we, we want to be a place that does that. Because we see each other as image bearers. Because it's what God has called us to do, and it's the right thing to do. So church, we, the church cannot have a reputation for sweeping things under the rug, not finding things that are un, too uncomfortable to talk about. Right? Like, we can't do that. Like Scripture presents it here in all of its ugly detail, so that we can feel it and know this still occurs. And we have a role to play in healing and in hope. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see Paul write this about Jesus. Verse 21. For our sake, so listen, for our sake, 
He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? Often we think of that only in terms of like the sin I've committed, but this is also like the sin that's been committed against you. That He took the one who was innocent and perfect and made Him like the one who did not have sin to be sin on our behalf. That we would have the righteousness of God. So you're a new creation in Christ. He calls us sons and daughters, right, and removes our shame. Like what has happened to us does not is not our identity forever. Right? That was Tamar's fear as she ran off, is this is what will mark me for all my days. And we're saying the gospel says that's not true. That we are sons and daughters of the King. Righteousness has been poured out on us, shame has been removed. Right? We are loved by the God of the universe by King Jesus. And so we come to our last character in the story is Absalom. And Absalom, right, we see this like just hate boiling out in him. Right? That seems like you're like, okay, Absalom, I think I'm feeling you here. Right? And yet look what he says. He tells her, Hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. It's like be quiet. And you're like, no. Wrong Absalom, don't tell her to be quiet. Don't tell her this isn't a big deal. But Absalom spoke in verse 22 to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for he hated Amnon because he had violated his sister. And so let's finish the story and see what Absalom does about this. Verse 23, After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited the kings, all the king's sons. Remember, sheep shearing time is kind of a festive season. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. Listen, he's making a, a play here to say, I don't think the king's going to come. But in, in an honor and shame culture, when you've been told no to something, typically your second request gets told yes to. So Absalom is playing a game here with David. And he doesn't expect David to come, but he asks him and he implores him, right? And, he, and so, listen in 25, he pressed him, but he would not go, but he gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. And then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is married, with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, for I have, have I not commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And all the king's son arose and each mounted his mule and fled. And we just see this scene of chaos now as the news gets back to David. Hey, Absalom has basically gone nuts and killed all your sons. And others are saying, no, 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 I think he just killed Amnon. And they're waiting on the, the people to come back to see what's true. And David is like broken over this. His Absalom runs off to his grandfather. But like that he waited till Amnon's guard was down two years later. He gets him drunk. He gets him alone, right? And he kills him. Like he's bringing justice for his sister. We just see the level of mess and ugly this is. Because also he's now just raised himself to next in line, right? Like there's going to be the accusations of that this wasn't about Tamar, this was about power. Church, listen, there are no neat bows in 2 Samuel 13. 
Right? Like, I think often we look at Scripture and like, okay, and then it's all good. No, it's not. Like, it doesn't get wrapped up. It doesn't get finished here. It is messy, and it's real, and we don't get the conclusion or the, just kind of the ending that we want. But it also doesn't get the final word. Look back to verse 13 as we, as we finish. As Tamar's talking to Amnon, she says this, As for me, where could I carry my shame? Like we see her crying out going, if you do this, where am I going to go? Where can I carry my shame? And we hear the, the, the desperation and the cry in that. And we can look at Tamar, and we can look at those of us in the room, and we can say this, we go to Jesus. And not in a, well, that's what you're supposed to say because it's church. But we go to Jesus. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah writes. Isaiah 61. I want you to listen to this as you think through Tamar's situation. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. This is Jesus, right? To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, think about Tamar here, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They will build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the former devastations, repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Right, like the prophet Isaiah is is prophesying about Jesus who is going to come and is going to make things right. He's going to set things back. He's going to restore things. And it's basically showing desolation and, 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 and mourning and, and sadness and difficulty and saying all of those things are going to be turned on their head when Jesus steps on the scene. Everything's going to be made right. He's going to come and He's going to take what we had and He's going to give us something better. It's why He'll tell us in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come, and I will give you rest. He'll give you rest. And so I know this morning that for some of you, you are the victim, and you're needing rest. And Jesus is saying, it's here, and I'll take the morning, and I'm going to make it gladness. I'm restoring things. I'm making things right. But for some in the room, if we're honest, there may also be those who have been the victimizers. Maybe not in this sort of brutal way, but in other ways, right? and you're feeling the heaviness and the burden of your sin. And Jesus is saying, come to me, all who are heavy. Burden will give you rest. Listen, we started the service this morning with the twin truths of Mother's Day being both this joyous celebration and also a really painful day, right? Because of, of singleness or... or, or infertility or miscarriages or a loss of a mom or a grandma. Right? Like there are both of those things are twin truths today. And here's the twin truth that we're going to end the service with this morning. The gospel is offensive because hope is offered to the victimizer. Right? Like that we, we've seen this, that David in his victimizing of Bathsheba doesn't die. He keeps the throne. There are consequences to his sin. Right? But it's that Jesus pays for it. 
And so listen, your sin will be paid for. The heinous sin will be paid for. It will either be paid for by you as you stand alone before God and will be crushed by the Holy One as His wrath is poured out on you, or it will be taken by Jesus. Right? And so part of what we want to say here is, ah, I don't know that I want people who do these type of things to receive any sort of hope. And what we need to know, listen, forgiveness doesn't mean a lack of consequences or justice. Okay? It doesn't mean that we just wash things away. But Jesus will satisfy what justice requires. He has done that at the cross. And so if your sin feels large, payment has been made. We trust that Jesus is sufficient for us. And so there's an offense to that. We understand. But we are all wicked, right, until we meet Jesus. This looks different, right, in regards to the culture as to how wicked we would be called. And the second thing is this. There is hope and mercy, forgiveness. There's also restoration. If you have been the victim, that moment does not doesn't have to own you. It's not who you are anymore. It doesn't get the final say. You aren't what was done to you. The price will be paid. Jesus has either done it on behalf of your victimizer or that victimizer will pay for it themselves. But justice will be paid. Vengeance is the Lord. And healing is available. If we don't do it alone, we, we will not play the role of Absalom to say, keep your mouth shut. It's okay. This is your brother. Go off. Right? We don't have to do it alone. Jesus has told us He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the one that we can go to, we have access to. And then He turns things on their head. That when He tells the storm to be quiet, it's quiet. When He touches the leper, He doesn't gain leprosy, they gain healing. He works miracles of healing for our emotions and our bodies and our spirits. And so let's be a place where we can have the hard thing confessed. And we can point to the hope of Jesus. And we can walk in the midst of the pain and the difficulty and the tears for as long as it takes for the Lord to do Isaiah 61 in an individual's life. Right? For the long haul. So, again, part of me wants to apologize that it's Mother's Day and that we did that. But I think it's, it's, it's good and right for us to wrestle with hard things. Um, and so, let me pray for us. We're going to enter a time of worship um, through, through song. If you need to sit and, and just let the music or the Spirit just minister to you, you do that. If you want to stand um, and, and sing to your King who has, who has freed you, right, as either the victimizer or the victim, in big ways or small ways, and do that. If you need someone to talk to or to pray with, there'll be some men and the women um, talk to you. But let, let's let this be a safe place today and for years to come, right? To trust that the gospel does what the gospel promises to do in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, God, would you bring conviction to those who need conviction brought? 
that they would confess sin um, and trust that their sin doesn't outrun your grace. That there's nothing that we can do so heinous that you would wash your hands of us. Father, it's the beauty of the gospel that you take your enemies and those who have rebelled and those who have done horrible things and you make us sons and daughters. In small ways and in big ways, Lord, thank you for that. God, right now we want to pray for those who um, may be feeling a little triggered or having flashbacks or, or pain or panic right now who are barely able to stay in their seat. God, would you pour out a, just a balm of grace and of mercy of your Spirit's present upon, presence upon them? God, that even in these moments that, that some healing and hope would take place, that they wouldn't have to carry things alone. They wouldn't carry shame that isn't theirs to carry. That, that they would know resource is available, the community is available, and God, that you are a God of restoration. Lord, would we get to see that happen and work and move in our lives? Lord, we need you, and we ask you to speak and to move and to do what only you can do in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.